COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot Help save lives and schedule your appointment at vitalant.org. You could help save lives. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to Napa Cabbage. Of all the cabbages on all the cabbage farms, only you have the crisp crunch worthy of our Bibigo Korean dumplings. No other cabbage would do, because no other cabbage tastes like you. We love you, Napa Cabbage. Just don't tell Green Onion. Napa Cabbage, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every hearty, flavorful Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks. On episode 97 of Confessions of a Marketer, we're talking retail voodoo. Hi, it's Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. We have David Lemley on to chat about marketing in retail. He calls it retail voodoo. Soon, Steve Rendazzo will be in to discuss experiences. We'll also have David C. Baker on building an agency, John McDonald of The Good on optimization, and we'll also continue the optimization angle with Justin Christensen. And I have a special guest for episode 100. It's Lindsay Patterson, chief client officer of WPP. Can't wait to have that discussion. We will go into what she's hearing from clients or what marketers are confessing. That should go live on September 30th, just a few episodes from now. We have a great lineup of podcasts on Podco Media Networks. There's this one, The Innovation Podcast, Demystifying Data, and My First Job. Plus, we have The Innovate Her Podcast, hosted by Innovate Her KC founder Lauren Conaway on the way in October, and Biz Latina from Olvin Valentin, which will be about Latin American business. That's all happening in October. Head over to podcomedia.com to listen and subscribe. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit vitalent.org today. Okay, on to David Lemley. David was an early employee at Starbucks, and that experience taught him a lot. His company, Retail Voodoo, does brand strategy for specialty food and beverage brands. David's expertise is in brand strategy, innovation, consumer markets, and consumer behavior. David's expertise in brand strategy, innovation, consumer markets, and consumer behavior is deep. So I wanted him to talk about retail marketing, what the retail landscape looks like, and of course, Starbucks, which we get to in part two. But in part one, we get the lowdown on retail voodoo. Enjoy the discussion. Let's get to it. David, welcome to Confessions of a Marketer. Great to have you here. Mark, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. Can you tell me about retail voodoo, about the company, but also how you got that name? 
Sure. So Retail Voodoo originally was what we called the brand development process at my agency, which has been around for 30 years, but used to be named after me. So in the 90s and early 2000s, we called the process of brand development and bringing strategy into it, Retail Voodoo. So I've had the URL since the mid-90s. And it was when we decided to narrow and focus on this better for you category and sort of bring this kind of big world-class brand marketing thinking down to the better for you space that we decided to switch the name to be Retail Voodoo as the front plate. So you do that voodoo that you do. (laughs) That's the idea. (laughs) So it's the notion is that Retail Voodoo takes a certain amount of science and it also takes a certain amount of gut instinct in order to be able to make the kind of changes in order to build a brand that can become big or become the category leader. And so we thought that name was really powerful. First, when we tested it, it had 100% stickiness, meaning people would always remember it and they would ask us what it meant. So that was pretty great. The second thing is we wanted it to be something that was really help people either opt in or opt away. So if you don't believe there's some sort of dark art or magic to the act of marketing and branding, then it's probably not for you. If it's completely data-driven, then we're going to show up as weirdos, which we'll take. Tell me about this category you mentioned, Better For You. Yeah, so Better For You really is the buzzword, if you will, for this next generation of audience who wants clean ingredient, who wants to try to stay forever young, who believes in if you put good in, you get good out. So you are what you eat. And so clean ingredient foods, functional snacks, lots of traceability and sustainability in the food and what they do to stay fit and stay well. It's really become a mindset. And it used to be a fringe audience that was really what I would call today, sort of angrier, older hippies. And we're talking about their offspring are now the mainstream. So it's millennials and the younger half of Generation X, this sort of zenial, if you will, if you mash those two together, that's really the core of the better for you audience. And then everyone younger all the way down into Generation Z is predisposed to the idea that food should be healthy unless you are intentionally binging or intentionally eating junk food, or intentionally drinking bourbon. (laughs) (laughs) Which I would never do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting. I spoke to a guy the other day who runs a company that extracts pea protein from peas in the Midwest on, on lots of farms, and then dries it and sells that powder to companies like Beyond Meat. And it started as a seed company 30, 40 years ago, whenever it was. And his dad had the vision that this company named Puris, P-U-R-I-S, would someday be able to do what it's now doing. And, you know, it took 30 or 40 years, but they're finally here supplying their product to companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger to create a kind of different class of food. It's really an amazing and exciting time to be involved in this space at all. And yeah, it's very interesting to talk about that, Puris, and the idea that they had so many years ago. What I think has happened is that science and technology have allowed people who are paying close attention to play with this 
for so many years, but because of big ag and what happened in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and particularly in the United States where food became so overprocessed that it started making people sick, I think companies like Purist and this idea of we can extract pea protein and make it clean and we can help create alternate, more sustainable food sources, that was slower to catch on until this generation saw so many of their parents and grandparents and people around them get sick from what they were eating and drinking. And so because they, like the rest of us, want to live forever and stay forever young, they are far more open to it. And so it's become much more normalized. And so the opportunity for things like Beyond Meat or other plant-based proteins to to get enough traction behind them to, to make it a viable business model for the brand and for the ingredient supplier. It's a fun new time. Yeah, yeah. Didn't anticipate talking about this, but it's an area that really fascinates me. And talking with Tyler Lorenzen, who's the CEO of Purist the other day, really got me charged up about that space. I love the Beyond Burger, and I like anything that can kind of make me healthy through what I eat. And I think it's great that there's so much innovation happening in that area. It is so fascinating. We've had clients on both sides. So we've worked with one of the originators of mainstreaming the grass-fed beef movement, which is another way to create sustainable, clean food. And then we've also worked with the oldest vegetarian brand in the world and helped modernize them and bring them in. So we've seen all of the food science and all of the ag and the carbon footprint for both sides. And it is really a fascinating space to play in. And it's interesting how much of it is still on some sort of spectrum. It's healthy is such a huge spectrum because if you think about it from, well, if you are clean and you eat vegan and you don't ever imbibe and you don't ever do XYZ and you manage this, you stay properly hydrated. Healthy to that particular cohort is one definition, but there's an entire definition that is more mainstream, which is anything better than Funyuns and Coke at 7-Eleven <laughs> for lunch is considered healthy. It's really fascinating. And so all of the retailers and all the manufacturers and all the brands that we talk to have some different definition depending upon what aisle it's in, what the consumer is, and and who they are. Right, right. We'll talk a little bit about voodoo later, but I want to talk about the first part of the name. I want to talk about retail. And retail has been beset by woes in the last couple of decades, certainly the last 15 years. I used to work for a retailer in communications back in the late 80s, early 90s. And even back then, you know, Sears was having trouble making money. And at $30 billion a year, they couldn't make a profit. So how do you approach brand strategy for a retailer differently today than you did in years past? Well, again, it's a really interesting time because if you think of the retail apocalypse, if you will, and I have a strong opinion about the retail apocalypse, I don't necessarily think it's Amazon's fault. I think they are hastening the change, but I think that the retail apocalypse, if you look at the ones who are going away, they are the resistant non-believers. They don't believe in customer experience. They've never read Joe Pine's book, The Experience Economy. And they have put as little money as possible into their employee training, their education, their incentivization of those employees, what the space looks like, and their merchandising mix and their stocking is all substandard. 
take Sears as an example. And I personally loved Sears growing up. They were the Amazon oh, so did I. before yeah. Amazon. Yeah, Sears was the thing and the catalog was this epic thing. I grew up in a household of six children and we would circle stuff in that catalog and it was a big deal if the catalog got to go in my room before my older brothers got it because I knew what they would circle and I wanted you know my marker to be the first one. It was a big thing. And so then Truly, to a little bit more detail, Sears came to my agency, Lemley Design, before it became Retail Voodoo, and said, hey, can you help us? Because we see the writing on the wall. And we did work through an entire process with them and came up with a whole plan to walk them into the future. And basically, it came back to what I'm saying, is that they didn't want to invest in their people, their merchandising, a new merchandising mix, the management team in place which is Eddie Lampert's team, they really wanted to just milk this sucker for all it was worth and write it out to the end. And it took them a decade longer to get there than we expected. But it's because their store experience is subpar. And if you look at, just compare that sort of beige shelving filled with stuff compared to beige shelving at Target filled with stuff. And what is the difference in the retail experience? They both have not amazing lighting, but the merchandising mix at Target and their employee training and the way that they help you opt into the brand feels like Sears did in 1920. It feels like many of the brands that are crushing it today who are, are expanding like crazy. Back in the day, the CEO of the retailer I worked for was a great guy. And he said about Sears, if bullshit were music, they'd be a brass band. <laughs> that is, that, that's good. I, I'm going to use that. That's good. <laughs> so William, you mentioned Amazon. And one of my favorite quotes of the last four or five years is Laura Alber, the CEO of William Sonoma, who said, I do not believe that Amazon is killing retailers. I believe retailers' bad service is killing retailers. That dovetails with what you just said. How does the service experience or just the overall experience in a retailer work into how you help a brand position itself. And I point to Best Buy, which was given up for dead. And because they have actual human beings in those stores now, they're surviving and thriving. Maybe thriving is a bit of an overstatement, but they're doing much better than anyone thought they would. Because you can get service there. Yeah, it's that human connection. And it, it really is that simple. You can slice it a bunch of different ways and you can really get in there and talk about audience analysis and cohorts and need states and have certain experts. But it comes down to having a training program for your frontline employees so that they understand what their role is within the mission of the organization. So there's a promise that the brand is making and it's up to them to keep it a human to human. And that is really the key difference. So if you educate and inform and empower them to make a good decision on behalf of the customer and help them understand why their job exists within the whole mission of the organization, they're going to be a lot more empowered and a lot more engaged and feel ownership in the brand, even if they are a part-time employee who's on their way somewhere else. I have a really good example of this thing in action. We worked with Nike on their Nike-owned stores for a while. They came to us and asked us the question, why is it that our frontline employees do not bleed Nike like everyone at HQ does? And so we went and did our research, and what we came 
back to is the realization that at Nike, when you are going to look at an initiative, it was a 500-page binder filled with all of this information about whatever the initiative was. And there were maybe 10 of those binders that you had to have in order to be able to function as a frontline employee at Nike Town or at the Nike-owned stores. And when we went to the stores, we realized that the people working in Nike, they had some deep affiliation with being athletes or being a hero or being a warrior of some sort, but they were on their way somewhere else. They were between 16 and 22 years old, and none of them was going to take the time to read a 500-page binder. So we were able to help the organization take each 500-page binder and turn it down into something we called the gist, which was one sentence about what the customer needs and one sentence so you can give them the gist on what it is. And so we took their entire universe of communication and turned it into about 12 one-sentence need states of the customer and one sentence the gist of here's what Nike stands for behind it and how you can help them. And that transformed the entire culture and they started having a lot more customer loyalty in a space that is sometimes not the most amazing retail experience. And it starts with the employee, right? It starts with addressing an issue with the employees so that they can make your customers happy. Exactly. Exactly. Think of it like if you went to, you know, being from Seattle, coffee's a big thing. I also happen to be really into independent coffee shops. And so I'll go into one and it has kind of a, you know, the music and the gritty walls and great coffee and the smell and everything is there. So it's got great theater, if you will. But if the barista doesn't look me in the face or doesn't talk to me, it leaves a completely different impression. And I'm not likely to advocate for that brand or come back. All right, next time, David continues our chat as we focus on Starbucks and the lessons he takes from that experience. So stay with us. This episode of Confessions of a Marketer was written, produced, and edited by yours truly. T. Jordan of A-Class Productions wrote the theme music. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2019. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. See you next time.